0: Hey there, Next real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now let's get back to the show. Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Don't drive angry, everybody. Each month on the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, Jim Germanic. Based in New York, Jim is a former agent at ICM where he repped people like Alan Arkin, Helen Hayes, Burt Lancaster, Shirley MacLaine, Dudley Moore... He's an award-winning writer, director, and producer, having created a number of films, the highly acclaimed romantic comedy feature Passionata, starring Jason Isaacs and Emmy Rosam, the festival hit Homophonia, and the film M, a romantic drama about loss and love. He's currently directing and producing a feature documentary about the life and art of Oscar-winning actor Martin Landau. And Jim is also busy in TV and new media, not to mention busy promoting his new book, Beyond the Craft, What You Need to Know to Make a Living Creatively.
2: Welcome to the show, Jim. Great to be here, Andy and Pete. Thank
0: you. We're going to talk about your film here in a minute, but you know, I, I think the first question we have for you is, uh, you know, you're in this crazy film business. How uh, how did you come to be in uh, in the film industry?
2: Well, I I, uh, I was always interested in acting, and I did a lot of acting in high school and college, and uh, I came to New York, and uh, for a very brief time, I tried to become an, uh, a stand-up comedian and actor. And I just didn't have the confidence at the time. and uh, I, didn't, I couldn't deal with the rejection. And uh, then I went into being in the crew of commercials, TV shows, films. Uh, I did everything, anything they wanted. I even worked as a gaffer and almost fried myself um, <laughs> uh, but uh, with the electricity. But, uh, and then I, I quit that and started in the mayor room of ICM. And I was very fortunate. I was promoted to an assistant and then I was promoted to an agent, which was very rare at that time because they usually absorb middle-sized agencies and their, their clients intact. And, uh, you know, I was there for eight or nine years and uh, represented Dudley Moore, Shirley MacLaine, Arthur Miller, Ellen Arkin, and some other people you mentioned. And uh, it was a really amazing experience because I could really learned about the business and how contracts work. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot about film, TV, theater. I started getting jealous of my clients. I, I miss being creative. And mm. people thought I was crazy. I was making a good six-figure job with a big expense account, and I quit. And I started at square one because a lot of my, my contacts were much, much bigger than me and still can continue to be <laughs> bigger than me. And uh, the heads of studios are not going to help Jim Germanic right now. And uh, so I started at Square One in independent film. And uh, I've made four features. Uh, Passionata is probably the biggest. That was released in 150 mm-hmm. countries. And M won the Grand Jury Prize at the Seattle International Film Festival and the Criterion Collection International Inspiration Award and a bunch of other things. And that's what I've been doing. I've been writing, directing, producing, and film – much more so in TV nowadays and uh, also in new media. I have a web series I'm very proud of called Life Advice TV, www.lifeadvicetv.com, where I interview old people and ask them to give me give me advice basically
1: oh that's wonderful 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 yeah
2: I got I got a nursing home senior citizen centers assisted living centers and asked the most dynamic seniors I could find to give me advice about relationships success longevity you name it and so I'm in in all the kind of media and uh, between those two parts of my career I thought I had a unique perspective on creative career success. And that's where I wrote a book about creative career success and creative entre- entrepreneurship.
0: It's fantastic. And, you know, it's it's great getting that perspective. I mean, you've seen really kind of uh, two very different sides of the industry, right? I mean, the very kind of the business-oriented contracts, negotiations, all of that side, as well as the creative side. So it really gives you a really rounded perspective on, on just how this industry works and what it needs to kind of drive forward. So I think that's a Fascinating and, and very valuable uh, asset to have.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have a small uh, to have a business head uh, to succeed. Uh, uh, you know, you have to understand the business, and uh, so it's left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain for me, basically.
1: That was, you know, you know the book, uh, the the War of Art, uh, Stephen Pressfield's book. Love it, uh, love it. Is, is it so great? I mean, I I read Stephen Pressfield's book, and I I get the feeling that my uh, slightly intoxicated uncle is screaming at me to get it get going with my life, right? To move forward. It's that's the voice in my head. <laughs> that's that's the feeling I get when I read your book. It is uh, with without the slightly slight intoxication. It really is a a deeply sort of uh, impassioned and personal uh, sort of directive and and I I, think it's a, I I think it's a great addition to the uh,
2: to the work so um, thank wonderful. you well it, it, yeah. it just, it just the, the, I wrote it because I mean, there is no books out there about succeeding in the business there really isn't it. there's books about screenwriting and acting and directing, but there's no books about okay, I have my degree or i 'm stuck in my career. What do I do? How do I get to yeah. the next level without solely relying on others, whether they're agents or managers or producers or other gatekeepers, and that's what I was—I was trying to empower people to be their own agent and succeeding yeah. that way.
1: Well, and you know, I, I just love this idea that your story comes from such a, a wide history. You know, we we see movies about people who make it by starting out in the mailroom, uh, but I, I've never met anyone who has. Uh, and until now. So
0: that is, uh, that's an amazing, uh, amazing story. Uh, many didn't. I just left. The movie that you chose is the absolutely fantastic uh, Harold Ramis film, Groundhog Day.
2: It's, it, it was that, between that and Moonstruck, and I, I picked Groundhog Day because I hadn't seen it in a very long time. Boy, did it hold up. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, magical, inspiring, touching film
0: for those uh, who aren't in the US groundhog day i think it's just a US holiday but it's coming up february 2nd it's and the whole idea of the holiday is they pull a groundhog out of the out of his little hole and if he sees his shadow we get six more weeks of winter and if he doesn't see his shadow uh, it's going to be spring. So that's kind of the whole premise of the uh, holiday.
1: Which has got to sound so weird to our international listeners. Besides right. this movie, that makes no sense.
2: Basically, <laughs> if a rodent sees its shadow, it <laughs> right. determines whether there's six more weeks of winter or not. <laughs> That's uh, right. I'm, so I'm not sure. Weird. I'm not sure what other countries would have this kind of thing, but anyway, we uh, hang
1: our weather yeah. on the future. <laughs> right. That's right.
2: When you say this movie holds up, I,
1: I we've been talking a lot about that. As it happens, you know, we've done the the Godfather series recently, which uh, overall holds up well. I'm sort of saying holds up in quotes. Then we hit Beverly Hills Cop and and Eddie Murphy in the '80s, and and you know, Trading Places holds up, but Beverly Hills Cop for me didn't as well as it did. Andy, I'm trying to put. My my finger on what it means when a movie holds up over time. This movie nails it. I was absolutely, I, I, you know, first of all, it felt like we've done this movie before on this show, which I think is is appropriate for the subject matter. I I adore it. It it absolutely every performance seems to to uh, you know absolutely stick for me they are compelling they're uh, lovable and clever and funny and heartwarming and uh, it's it's possibly one of uh, i think bill murray's best he admits absolutely, it he says it's yeah.
2: the probably the be- he says it's probably the best work i've ever done he said that i yeah. think it's the best work bill murray has ever done i think it's the best work annie mcdowell has ever done and i think it's the best Harold Ramis film this film to me is a masterpiece and it's a masterpiece oh. because it works on a number of different levels. It's very, very funny. But it also works as as a piece of inspiration. It's inspiring. There's something really deep about this. There's something really deep about this. And it's all around, you know, if you could have your life or a day or an interaction to do over again, you know, some it's a fantasy that so many people have, you know. Who in the audience hasn't wished time would stand still and offer a second, third, or even twentieth chance?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, at the time I and mean, the film came out, and you know, it, people liked it and everything. Um, it it didn't seem to have the love that uh, it does now. I think it's one of those films that's really grown on people and people. We're able to, with multiple viewings, to start kind of connecting and and seeing those different themes that it have this this uh, you know especially the religious communities, all the different religious communities seems to have connected to this idea of selflessness and rebirth and and this spiritual nature, this 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 growth that this character has to really find himself and and figure out um, the right way to live. It's a it's a really fascinating uh, kind of allegory for uh, living. Uh, Living right, you know. Well, I, I mean,
2: certainly Hindus and Buddhists uh, uh, see versions of reincarnation here, and Jews find significance in the fact that uh, Bill Murray's character is saved only he after he performs mitzvahs, good mm. deeds, right, and has returned yeah. to earth, not heaven, to perform more. And so and, and and you know, it's 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 it shows him loving life. Including loving the fact that that it goes.
0: It's it's nice seeing a a film that really feels like it has this this uh, spiritual message. Without like hitting you over the head with it, you know it's it's not like these filmmakers, anybody involved, went into this saying, "Hey, let's make this film that celebrates," you know, the the right spiritual way to live. I mean, they went into this making this kind of this crazy time loop comedy, and I it, I think what inadvertently they ended up discovering as they were doing it was, hey, there's there's some more here, and people really latched onto that, and I think that is one of its biggest strengths is it just never feels like it's overtly pushing anything.
2: I think the mark of a great film is that we barely remember a time when it wasn't in our lives. And Groundhog Day passes that test with ease. It seems to have been with us forever, but it just was made a mere 23 years ago. It reinvents structure, basically. It creates a new framework that makes you understand uh, uh, other great films, you know?
0: And it feels timeless. It doesn't feel like it's, it's dated. It doesn't feel like, hey, this was set in the 90s. That was also deliberate because Danny Rubin, who co-wrote the the film with Harold
2: Ramis, Harold Ramis wanted to put some specific jokes that were related to the early 90s. And Danny Rubin, who uh, uh, co-wrote it, said, no, let's not do that. This is going to go on for a long time. He had a, he had a sense.
1: That's smart. It's such smart writing. And uh, it's interesting to look at, at Danny Rubin's, you know, I'm looking at his credits, and, and he, he doesn't have a whole lot.
2: No. He just, well, it's very timely. He just wrote the book for the Groundhog the Musical, which is opening here in New York on Broadway in March. What, do you, very, what do you know of it? Well, after it had a very successful run uh, where I was nominated for a number of theater awards in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, Danny Rubin wrote the book for the musical, and the musical uh, is uh, written the, musically by Tim Minchin, who wrote Matilda. Oh, gotcha. Okay, an Australian. Yeah, yeah. And it's opening in, in, in this March, and it's directed. Oh, do you have out. tickets? Uh, not yet, but I, after this interview, I think I'm going to get them.
0: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> sure, absolutely. It's
1: timely, we, you know, he's he did uh, Hear No Evil in 1993. Um, uh, did the story behind that, uh, which was a, a, a fine film, Marley Matlin uh, and um, uh, D.B. Sweeney and Martin Sheen. Uh, but in in terms of his feature films, that's uh, uh, that's that's it. Oh, well, SFW, which I, I actually have never seen. Uh, I haven't either. But but you get the feeling with this film, like I, this is this this is is a an opus for him. You know, it's like his catcher in the rye. You know, <laughs> he writes it, and then uh, and, and what he comes back around to is something very, um, you know, it's I, I I don't know that he's ever been able to capture the heart and spirit uh, of of a narrative quite so well since
2: he hasn't. But you know, uh, this is enough. I mean, uh, the, the show business is such a difficult business. Yeah. To have one masterpiece is is, is, an, is a giant achievement. It really, really is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting that his original script, the way that he wrote it, it actually started uh, kind of in the middle of the story with essentially right around when, uh, when Phil, um, I think it was around the time when Phil sees um, uh, Ned and punches him and uh, punches him in the street. And I think that's about when it starts. And the story is just kind of him living this this crazy life and, and you hear this narration kind of explaining what's going on, how he's stuck in this time loop and everything and, and keeps reliving the same day. And it ends with his suicide and, and to him waking up. Um, and then he also learns, weirdly, that Rita, she confesses that she's also trapped in her own, own time loop. So it sounds like kind of a strange, uh, different twist on the story. But it was enough to draw Harold Ramis and the team in. And then Harold Ramis ended up doing some rewrites.
2: There's a lot of contra- not controversy, but a lot of different opinions about how long that time loop lasts. Harold Ramis was quoted as saying two different things. One, he said it was 10 years long. Then he said it was 34 years long. Uh, Ruben was quoted as saying it was, it was a lifetime. So, you know, we don't really know. The studio said it was just two weeks at one point. But uh, it could be, <laughs> Apparently it, they it had never seen a, the movie. No, obviously not. <laughs> um, but w- one, one thing I really love about this film is it's, it, it's, it's, it's rare for a comedy to be, you know, funny and profound at the same time, and also popular. It's, this is a smart film. And as a comedy screenwriter, I can tell you, uh, you know, there's a real, there's a very underserved audience right now. And that is audiences who like intelligent comedies. It just seems that a lot of the comedies nowadays are just vap- vapid, superficial. And here's a real great example of an intelligent comedy. And it's Groundhog Day is living proof that it's possible to create intelligent comedy that still has a broad appeal.
0: Absolutely. Now, Harold Ramis uh, co-wrote it, and then he also directed and produced it. What's What's your sense of Harold Ramis as uh, as kind of a creative force in the film industry? I mean, are you a fan of his films? I, I know he's kind of had a variety of ups and downs.
2: Again, he had a tremendous influence on on my writing. Uh, I know that other filmmakers, Jay Roach, Jay Kaz, and Adam Sandler, Peter and Bobby Farrelly... Uh, David Russell. I know he's influenced a lot of, of filmmakers. He certainly influenced me. Um, I was very in- influenced by Saturday Night Live when I was growing up and SCTV, and he was a big part of SCTV. Uh, I was influenced by Mel Brooks, the Zucker brothers, and um, and and this guy. Uh, you know, he did one of my favorite favorite films, uh, Animal House, and. Um, uh, I think Harold, you know, he's a ge- Ghostbusters. I mean, this guy's a genius. He's a genius. He's made, I don't know, four or five amazing, amazing films. Uh, the whole Analyze That and Analyze This. Uh right, multiplic- right. Multiplicity was an excellent film. Um, Back to Vacation. School. He did yeah. Back to School, Stripes, Caddyshack. I mean, these are classic. I mean, I saw Caddyshack. Uh, a, f- a couple of years ago, I-, I was laughing my head off. I,
1: I think the the uh, you know Andy, your uh, what you bring up about uh, Danny Rubin and uh, and the original script and and Harold Ramis, I think maybe illustrative of what Harold Ramis is able to bring to his writing, which is that sense of taking something wacky and funny. I mean, taking Bill Murray as the you know as the groundskeeper or you know this crazy time loop uh you know uh, essentially sci-fi story and bringing with bringing to it a ton of heart right i mean that's that is i i think a real gift of of ramus is is being able to to uh, add heart to levity and and uh, i i think that makes the the writing that much more approachable
2: absolutely the guy had a very interesting background he worked for seven months in a mental institution here at ramus
0: Wow, I didn't know And he said
2: that was tremendous preparation on working with actors. (laughs) 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 He thought that was tremendous preparation. But the point is he understood the human condition. He understood human behavior in a way that many directors may not. Um, And I think that endows all of his work. There's a humanity there. Um, And then this particular work, I mean, as a writer, this is a classical, and, and it was very popular, particularly in the early in the eighties and nineties. A classical redemptive narrative, you know, with, which has echoes of a Christmas Carol. You know, uh, um, this man is redeemed. He starts out as a perfect bastard, and he starts. I don't know. After after many trials, <laughs> after many trials, he suddenly decides to make it man.
0: That's such an interesting point, because uh, you know so often you hear uh, you know about these these characters and and how you want to you know the whole save the cat notion of a script and how you want to have a character who the audience can connect with and bill Murray's character phil connor is is really just kind of uh, just an absolute jerk, you know like you said, he's just a bastard. I mean, he's not somebody that's easy to like right away. he doesn't like
2: himself, he doesn't like his yeah, job. right. He doesn't like what is it? the uh, Groundhog Day. He doesn't like having to travel to County, Pennsylvania. He doesn't like any right. of these things. He doesn't, like, he doesn't respect his co-workers. I mean, you certainly start off with someone who's, who's certainly uh, uh, conducive to redemption, that's for sure.
0: So what is it about this character, and maybe it's the way uh, that Bill Murray performs it, or that Harold Ramis directs it, or that it's written, that, that really helps the audience really kind of go along with Phil and go along on this ride with him? As opposed to watching this film, I mean, we've all seen movies with a, with a protagonist that's not likable, and it takes a really hard time, or a long time for us to really kind of connect with the film because we don't like the protagonist. This is a protagonist that we don't like, but we're able to still connect with him right away.
2: I think. Look, I, you can say what you want. This is offered to Michael Keaton and Tom Hanks, who ejected it before, is offered to Bill Murray. Um, I don't think it would be the same film with those those actors. I think this this is this is this film is Bill Murray. This film, sh- Bill Murray, even as a jerk, has a tremendous vulnerability. He's a normal Joe. He's we relate to him. We know this guy, and. Even though he's behaving like a jerk, there's still some kind of connection we have to him. I don't think that would be the case with a lot of other actors. I don't think it would have worked with a lot of actors. I think the whole reason this film works is because of Bill Murray. This,
1: this is like Back to the Future without Michael J. Fox. I mean, I, I don't think you can, I, I don't think this movie exists as it is without without the you know what Bill Murray brings to it. He's, he's just fantastic. Let's talk about Andy McDowell because uh, you, uh, Jim mentioned that you think this is her best performance. Andy uh, has been incredibly sarcastic about uh <laughs> annie mcdowell in the past uh what's your sense of her performance in this film
2: i think it's the best performance she's ever given also again there's reasons that masterpieces are masterpieces mm-hmm. they, they, this they, this is the best work i think of annie mcdowell bill murray and harold Ramis. Uh, i think it's the best work they've they've done and they've done a lot of great things um and then mcdonald came to fame just four years before in sex lies and videotape if i'm not mistaken yeah, oh, yeah. any good comedy because i write as you know i write romances and romantic comedies often you want the audience to fall in love with the people that your couple is falling in love with so you want the audience to fall in love with her and we do
1: oh that is it uh, and i i think The central moment for me when when I fall in love with her is actually, and this is a this is a a brilliant piece of the script. It's actually when we are introduced to her, right? Uh, You know, I don't know how that moment came about, but when we see her against the blue screen, uh, you know, because she's wearing a blue jacket, you know, watching her head or you know her head floating on the on the uh, chroma key uh, is so delightful, and she uh, communicates such a wide eyed uh, innocent. And optimism, without speaking at all, just in her little wave, that uh, I think demonstrates exactly who we want the love interest to be. Uh, in a exactly, movie. And, and it's just iconic. exactly.
2: And in fact, she she has those qualities that Bill Murray eventually strives towards. He, she ha- she cares. Yeah. She 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 she's excited by this holiday. She's excited by the people celebrating. She loves her job, and she tries to be the best she can be. And, she, and she has, she's a real, you know, she's re- really human. We feel the humanity in her. The biggest goal as a screenwriter is to bring out the humanity of your characters. I mean, we feel her, we feel her humanity immediately upon seeing her.
0: When she when she says that, oh, I always make a toast to world peace, we really get a sense that she really does make a toast to world peace and really believes that. You know, that's you know, that's what she wants. You know, it's that's it's, right. it's uh, Not it,
2: cynical or skeptical.
0: Right. It's exactly. For real. It's she's unlike genuine, when Bill
2: tries it. She, right. She's she's genuine
0: yeah, and she she takes this uh, what what I think is so uh, great about the script is how she takes it um so well as far as, I mean, you know, she's one of these these characters in the film who has to act constantly with uh, with Bill Murray like it's the same day. I mean, for her, she's always starting at, uh, you know, at the same ground zero point at the beginning of uh, February second, you know, with you know, the whole situation as uh, it's all just the next day. As opposed to him, who's obviously been living however many days. What I think is so great about her performance is that I always believe that she's uh, going along with it in that day. And I think that's an incredible, incredible strength in seeing how she can actually go from struggling with Phil in the morning to kind of falling for him over the course of the day, regardless of which day it is. I think that's amazing.
1: That's a really interesting point, Andy, because, I mean, here, you, you know, in, in so many films, right, you know, one of the great uh, hallmarks of great character writing is watching the character, you know, what's the character's transform- transformative arc, right, over the course of a film? How do they grow? How do they change? And invariably, characters around them uh, change. In this film, they they just can't, right? They absolutely can't change over the course of the film or it, it breaks the—it uh, it sort of pulls back the curtain, and, and I think— uh, um, I, I think you're right. She's she's
2: really solid. Well, she doesn't transform, but he, he transforms. She doesn't transform, but exactly. he suddenly realizes he's in love with her. As
1: a result of his transformation.
2: Correct. And another interesting part of this in terms of the screenwriting is that when you're writing a screenplay, you usually try to avoid repetition. And that's the whole thing here. It's built on repetition. The, the way they get... Through it is to short circuit everything just so just when you think something is going to happen that you've seen before film gets to it before you and changes or abbreviates it in some way. When I teach screenwriting uh, I know Andy does too and one thing you really want to convey is you know what what's distinctive about this story. How is this distinctive from other stories you've seen in this genre and they kind of created a, a, a completely new thing here.
1: I, I like the—I uh, I sort of hang my hat on the second act, when they're able to communicate uh, the the life and death struggle, uh, the number of times he kills himself, right? And they do it with such sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, humanity, humility, and humor. Um, they, uh, they, they, I think, really nail when he drops the toaster in the bathtub, or he drives the truck off the ledge in the old mine— um, you know, they have us laughing, and otherwise, that's a that's a pretty dark segment.
2: It's it is dark, and I can imagine studio executives poo-pooing some those kind of suicide scenes today. You know, uh, there's something to be said for letting creative people be creative and make their own thing. I, I don't know if that that would have passed the committee. Yeah, that's a what's great interesting in about day, in this day and age, and I, I love the darkness. If you have sure. to live the same day over and over again. Yeah, you, you may try to commit suicide, absolutely. <laughs> and the way he did it, you know, it's it's his cynicism and eventually his sincerity feels so real because he comes by them so honestly. And he proves that if you feel it from the feet up, there are no cliches. And that's such an important thing in screenwriting. You're constantly trying to bust cliches. Uh, you're cliche busting. This is such a wonderful film. Because it's, the, it 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 avoids it.
0: The interesting uh, element that uh, of darkness with the film that the studio uh, was initially having some issues with, I thought was interesting, is the old man and the fact that this old man, uh, you know, we get to this point where Phil uh, meets this old man who's dying, and he keeps trying over and over and over again to save this old man, and he just can't. He he finally learns that you know. He's not a god. He can't just always, you know, make things work out in the end. And the studio actually had some hesitation about that sequence. And, and uh, Ramus very uh, strongly had to argue with them about this is a critical part of the story. It's not going to uh, make sense if he is able to save him. The whole message here is that he's not a god and he can't do that. So it's interesting that there's another dark element, but that is one that the studio was a little hesitant about.
2: I, 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 I didn't pick that up, to be
0: honest with you. I thought I, I thought that he did help make that
2: guy live. I, I didn't pick that up. That was a little bit subtle, I guess. I, I didn't pick that up that he couldn't help that save that, that guy. I didn't realize that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think he keeps trying. Yeah, he keeps trying to do it, but it just never quite, quite works out. And uh, I think that's a, a good message for that, uh, that particular part in the film. Because he is starting to get to this place where he's just like, you know, I'm a god. And I think that, that having this sense that uh, he can't always uh, save things in the end, I think, is a, is a pretty powerful little um, moment there
2: it brings up issues of fate and predestination and can't change a lot of things but he could change things in his life but he couldn't change everybody else's life chris elliott wow yeah what happened to chris elliott i think he's still involved still uh i miss him in films i miss him i really miss him i thought he, he he uh he really had a very realistic portrayal of uh a cameraman i mean he didn't he didn't try to Make the cameraman flashy, or didn't try to make him unrealistic. He really focused on making this guy a believable cameraman. And uh, Andy, I know that you've been you've you you've been a cameraman yourself, and you've worked with many many cameramen. I thought this was spot on.
0: Yeah, especially for a news cameraman. I mean, he just seems like the sort of guy who's just he's got the camera on his shoulder. He's ready to just get the shots. You know, I mean, he's out there. Uh, I think my favorite bit with him is is after. Uh, uh, Phil drives drives off the quarry cliff and crashes. He's like, oh, he might be okay. And then the big one's <laughs> goes, oh, No, probably no, not now. No, he's not okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was excellent. That was excellent. Oh, so I caught a young Michael Shannon in there for the couple of lines. The famous yes. actor Michael Shannon, who was one of my yeah, favorite I actors.
0: I guess he, this is one of his first films, I, I imagine. What I, what I find so interesting is for whatever reason, I don't know what it was that Michael Shannon did in his performance here, but ever since I first watched it, his character always stood out to me and I always recognized him as like, oh, he's the guy from Groundhog Day. And it's just, it's such a small part, but just the way that he shakes uh, Bill Murray's hand at the end there, it's just, it's always stuck with me. So interesting that, uh, you know, he kind of struck a chord with me right out of the gate like that. He, of course, specializes in many dark, heavy roles. Just nocturnal animals just recently. And a good Elvis. Was he? Oh, yeah. Elvis and Elvis Nixon. Elvis and that-
1: Nixon this uh, last year.
2: I didn't catch that. I'll look for that. That's good. Oh, you should absolutely catch it. Yeah, yeah, he was terrific. Yeah. He's a great actor. It's a great yeah. act. In fact, anything he does is worth seeing. I've seen him on stage. He's just a fantastic actor.
0: Uh, one of my favorite uh, characters in the film, though, uh, has to be Ned Ryerson, uh, good old Stephen Tobolowski. Really playing it big as just uh, one of the just funniest uh, bits in the film, which just always cracks me up, the insurance salesman. And, uh, uh, you know, the way he brings everything to the table here, I mean, he just doesn't hold back at all. I mean, it's just, he is a riot. Again, it, 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 it reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life or
2: Back to the Future, uh, or even in theatrically Thornton Wilders are a town. We know these characters. We know the size of this city, this town, I'm from a city around the same size, and we know that these, they, they, these characters are created from truth. We, we know these characters. We've met them. We know exactly who they are. In fact, we, when we initially see Bill Murray, we know who this guy is. We've met this guy. He's above it all. He's cynical. He's skeptical. Um, and the same thing here, the, 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 the insurance salesman. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Uh, a little uh, cliched but he plays you know we know it's not it's not it's not false or artificial it's real
1: this is one of those films that makes you think okay he's cliches are cliche for a reason right I mean we connect with them we with them because we've seen him before because they feel like, you know, hand to glove. But look, I mean his performance in this is it, you know, it it certainly represents his sort of comic uh you know leanings, but he has done some uh, an incredible variety in terms of of just his talent as a character actor. Uh he's he is an incredible
2: talent. He is in fact he's still doing I think he's currently in two different shows right now. He's currently uh in two div- two different TV series. So, he's working
0: and he deserves yeah. to work. Have either of you guys seen the movie uh, Stephen Topolowski's Birthday Party? It's no. uh it's kind of a documentary following basically, I mean, he's a storyteller. Stephen Tobolowski he just always has these big parties at his house where he invites everybody over and just tells really interesting stories. And it's this fascinating movie that I can't even remember where I found it. Um, but it's it's just, you know, him telling stories and weaving these tales with all of his guests. It's just a really, really kind of... A, fun and powerful film. It's definitely worth uh, tracking down and checking out.
2: Yeah, this is, in some ways, this could be seen as an art film in mainstream clothing. This, this is a, I'm not sure this film would be made today. I'm not sure it'd be greenlit by a studio, this film. And that's the unfortunate thing. Um, because of its darkness, uh, there are certain elements, even though we have these very familiar characters, uh, 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 but there are certain elements that I, I don't think would be, uh, they would allow in terms of studio finance, it has it's a, to me, it feels in many ways like, a, like an independent film.
0: Well, and that I think speaks a little bit to what you were saying earlier about the fact that you know they're not making this sort of comedy today. I mean, this is a comedy, which is a that real actually, shame. Yeah, it has a lot more going on to it, and so it makes me wonder if they might greenlit. Or greenlight the uh, the Danny Rubin version of the script that might be a little more wacky, uh, but be a little more hesitant to jump on board with the Harold Ramis uh, rewrite version that had a lot more heart and a lot more character and a lot more interesting things happening.
1: You can imagine him greenlighting a movie like this if it was if, if they really jumped on board the darkness, you know, and you're suddenly you're reliving every day and it's seven. Uh, <laughs> right, over, yeah. and over, and over again, just <laughs> horror after horror. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I, I think this one walks such a fine line. I don't. I, it doesn't feel like anybody'd be comfortable.
2: That really speaks to allowing filmmakers to make their films, because you know, I think uh, in some ways, some of the studio, the studios are kind of, kind of cannibalizing themselves by just allowing these giant superhero films and not allowing. These kind of romantic comedies and comedies to get out there. It's very, very upsetting to me.
0: Yeah, it's 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 an interesting shift in the the way that the industry uh, works now. It's very frustrating.
2: I, I mean, it's been I think it's been dumbed down to a large extent.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, Deadpool I think was such a huge success starring Ryan Reynolds because it had some of this darkness in it. You had a su- yeah. it was a, it played off the superhero in that the superhero, you know. Uh, you see him warts and all you see his <laughs> you see the problems yeah. he has uh,
1: that well and see that movie set. i don 't think that that movie played that movie succeeds on its constraints right I mean that movie succeeds because they had to gorilla the thing uh, into theaters they didn't have the budget that you, you know Batman versus Superman did, so they had to you know improvise an awful lot to make that character
2: what it was. Right, right. But I think people relate to that, yeah. his character, just like they're related to Bill Murray's character, because they just, there's a realness, there's a genuineness, there's a humanity.
0: And Bill Murray certainly has brought some of that to some of his films after this. I mean, you know, um, the uh, um, uh, Lost in Translation certainly had a little bit of, kind of a little bit more of that gravitas with his performance. She's a very talented director, Sophia Coppola, but I think this that film would, have, would not have succeeded without Burr Murray. Again, yeah. same yeah. same deal. It's kind of become his his thing like in the last decade or so. It seems like maybe since uh uh Wes Anderson kind of started bringing him into the fold with uh with uh Rushmore. Um he certainly has kind of taken a turn and I think I think it's actually benefited his career. I think making choices like uh you know Saint Vincent or Get Low, right? Or even Broken Flowers, the Jim Jarmusch film. I mean, he's he's it's. It, I think this film kind of helped him begin shifting into a direction that I think has has helped him uh, find a, a better direction for his career in in the two thousands.
2: Look, he he's best in those roles that, you know. In in one way, it's an everyman, in another way, it shows the darkness uh, 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 of of the human character of of people. You know that that film in in Saint Vincent. He you know it was a funk, basically a functional alcoholic and. Um, People relate to Bill Murray. They just relate to him. They just relate to him in a way that they don't relate to these super handsome, slick kind of actors.
1: Is it true that Bill Murray is uh, completely unrepresented now, that to get him in a film you have to just leave him a message on his voicemail?
2: Yeah, there was a story about Ted Melfi, uh, the director of St. Vincent, having to call, uh, I believe, an uh, an 800 number to get him. (laughs) And uh, I think he has a lawyer, but... uh, yeah i don't know how to get uh, uh, he he believe me he gets enough offers as it is through that yeah. bizarre system that it <laughs> seems to work for him
0: well and he certainly is, has just kind of adopted his th- this crazy persona, right? I mean, he's the he's the guy who we hear stories about where he walks into a restaurant and and takes some french fries off of a guy's plate and eats them in front of him and says and then he walks out saying nobody's ever going to believe you. And it's like <laughs> these are the stories we hear about this guy. It's like I believe that. That makes total well, sense. Well, he likes people d- for how he likes people. He does like yeah.
2: people and he likes to party and he likes to celebrate. I know that his, he has a son, his son has a, a restaurant in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, here. And uh, I, be, I believe on Thanksgiving or uh, uh, recently, he was, he was behind the bar uh, making drinks for two hours. You know, the, that's the kind of guy he is. He likes so relating to normal people. He doesn't need to relate to celebrities, right. fellow celebrities. Uh, I, know, met him one, I met him once. I met him once. I was in, uh, I helped represent a little bit Lauren Michaels, the creative setting alive, when I was at ICM. And I was in Lauren Michaels' office in the NBC Rockefeller Center. And uh, at the same time, there was a William Morris agent there. And we were both talking to Lauren. And Bill Murray jumped in the room and said, Agent police, agent police, agent police. (laughs) 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 And that's when I met Bill Murray. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so funny, so funny.
1: Who, who else on the cast do we want to highlight before we um, uh, move along here? Anybody else jump out to you besides the groundhogs?
2: This film is really about Bill Murray and Annie McDowell, You know,
0: yeah. You do bring up the groundhogs, though, Pete, and I think that uh, you know it's it's funny that uh, the funny story about these groundhogs. Uh, I guess uh, Bill Hoffman and Kim Miller were the animal training trainers and handlers. Uh, they said for, to, to get the groundhogs to work well for the film, the best thing they could do is actually breed some groundhogs. It was, so I, <laughs> what, a, what a strange little way to uh, to do it. But uh, yeah, they so they took a groundhog couple and then they, they bred them and raised the babies so that they were picture ready. And uh, they had a couple of groundhogs that they collectively named Scooter. And those were the groundhogs that were in the film. Uh, so, such a strange way to uh, to get these uh, these marmots to uh, work for, for for a movie. <laughs> okay. Well, you know that's
2: it's, it's it's very esoteric. But you know, I I I've always admired uh, these animal wranglers who work on films. They're really great at what they do. They're just great at what they do. I know there's people who specialize, of course, in dogs and horses and even insects. And 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 it, I, I I admire these people tremendously. They're they're an integral part of filmmaking.
0: Looking at the production side of getting this movie made, um, they chose not to film it in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, uh, where where the actual thing happens. Right. Woodstock, Illinois, just uh, just I think right next to the Wisconsin border. Um, a, a lot of that hinged on the fact that uh, where Punxsutawney actually has their Groundhog Festival up on Gobbler's Knob, it's actually just a hilltop outside of town and it's very sparse and and just and it looks like you're out in the forest. And they really wanted it to feel like a town square. So they found this, this you know, town, Woodstock, Illinois, that they kind of turned into Punxsutawney, much to the chagrin of everybody who lives in Punxsutawney. But, you know, I think the location works really well. And having this small town feel, I think, uh, really works well. And I think they, they designed a great look for the overall town and the town square and everything. It just feels very small town and homesy.
2: Well, it's very relatable to all of us who grew up in America and, and, and cities like this. Um, and I think it was a very comfortable environment for both uh, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, who are from Illinois. They're from Chicago. So they're from
0: nearby. Yeah, so they didn't have to so travel too far. to That's, uh, that's right. That's right. right.
2: And, and, and it's important for a director to be comfortable.
0: Is there anything that really stands out to you as far as the production? Uh, you know, I, for me, it, it always hinges so much on the score that George Fenton does. I think that it's just a beautiful score. It really emphasizes the romance and the uh, kind of the strangeness of the situation and everything. I think he does a, a beautiful score here.
2: I like the score a lot. Yeah, I like the score a lot. I don't. I don't know much about the composer, but I, I, th- I thought it certainly it worked. I, you know, from a writing point of view, I was fascinated by the different. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I love to see the film again. It's a film that I want to see again now. I, I know, I just saw it a couple of days ago in preparation for this interview, but I wanted to see it again. <laughs> I still right. want to see it again. Because I want to see the build from him, the day one, day two, day three, if you will, uh, all the different days, re- the, the day repetitions. At first, he continued being an asshole, then he then he became suicidal. And only at the end of, I would imagine, many, many days did he decide to be benevolent, did he decide to be altruistic. And that, 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 that was very interesting. It was completely, unlike many films that are, we see, it was completely unpredictable. Mm-hmm. We didn't see where this is going. We did not see where this is going. At
1: any point, I uh, I want to shout out uh, Pembroke Herring uh, as the editor. I I you know for anyone who spends any part of their livelihood uh, cutting footage, uh, you you I don't think you can watch this movie and not at least think for a minute. Oh my goodness! Uh, how what a a complex sort of brain teaser it would be to cut all this footage together and keep track of all of the different loops uh, in such a way to to sort of build the visual narrative. And I I think this is a, this is a great film because yet. Yeah, it, it doesn't look edited, right? I mean, it, it, it is a very natural visual flow to it, and I think he, he did a terrific job uh, making a, making this film look natural.
2: I can't imagine what... Uh, having, <laughs> I can imagine uh-huh. having all this different footage and saying, okay, now what? What do I do? Uh, again, for example, what... It seemed... Yeah, I, I get the the first act and the third act, but the second act... Oh. What, what, what order do I put these different loops in?
1: That and could, I could thought, have been a yeah, right? mess. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that's that's yeah. a mess. And he made sense of that mess. He's also editor.
1: behind a, a couple of uh, films we've talked about. We, uh, Nash Lampoon's Vacation. He did uh, Vacation. Uh, one of my favorite films, uh, uh, which I, I know is a bit controversial, Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> I really like that movie. Uh, he did, but, but in terms of the scope of his, of, of his work, Out of Africa. So you go from a movie like Groundhog Day to something, to an epic like Out of Africa. He's got a, a, a rich uh, list of
2: credits here. Uh, that's, uh,
1: well, a, he's a, a br- really he's solid editor. editor.
2: Yeah. And I, I think like smart directors, a lot of directors want to control their editor. They've transformed their editor into, a, if you will, a technical secretary. Yeah. I don't think Ramis did that. I think Ramis was smart enough, as many great directors are, to let this guy add to the creative equation, to let this editor really make it better, tr- enhance it. Absolutely. And I had the strong feeling he was smart enough to do that. I don't think he dictated. I think he said, hey, this is what we have. What do you think? What? Yeah. And, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he let the guy contribute creatively.
0: Well, and obviously they worked together on vacation. So clearly they probably had a shorthand and they they uh, already had a good working relationship. So Ramus was really able to to know what Herring was going to bring to the table here, which I think is also very important is having those partnerships in the creative industry.
2: Absolutely, a lot. If you look at a lot of uh, great directors, you know Clint Eastwood, Ron Howard, what have you, they basically use the same film family, almost without exception. I mean, craft services, you name it, they use the yeah. same people over and over again, because again, it gives them comfort.
0: Um, this film, uh, this film did get uh, nominated for some awards. It, it won best original screenplay at the BAFTAs um, and it, a number of other awards. However, uh, oddly, at the Oscars, I, I don't know if it's oddly, but it didn't get any recognition at the Oscars. Um, best original screenplay that went uh, the, the films nominated were Dave in the Line of Fire, Philadelphia, Sleepless in Seattle, and The Piano, which ended up being the uh, the Oscar winner. Uh, it makes me wonder if um, this was one of those films that at the time, like I mentioned at the beginning, it really kind of felt like, oh, yeah, it's a fun comedy, but really has grown in estimation over time.
2: I think that happens a lot. I think there's a tremendous bias that the uh, the Academy has against comedies. Uh, I don't think they get the recognition and respect
0: they deserve. Uh, in Although general. Dave and Sleepless in Seattle were both nominated that year to comedies or at least romantic comedies. So it's it's uh, arguably
1: less comedic than this, though. I mean, this one—I don't. Dave and Sleepless in Seattle don't have any of that element of kind of the second act slapstick that this one does.
2: Sure, no, no, they're much more, more in many ways, more much more romantic, right? In a sense, absolutely. Um,
1: But was that a robbery? I mean, should this one have been considered?
2: It was a robbery, but you know hindsight is twenty twenty. If you look at a yeah. lot of a lot of great films, they were not given respect, uh, sure. and and you know it's it's. I think this will be looked at in hundred years from now. I think this is a that, that's it. This is a very important film, and a, a lot of films that are, are, are doing well at the box office. I don't think it will be looked at twenty years from now. Yeah, I think that, that's a normal process.
0: It, it is. It's just kind of the you know shaking shaking things up and seeing which things stick. This certainly is one that sticks. I mean, obviously, uh, you know those films, that list of films, um, they're not ending up on the uh, the Library of Congress's uh, National Film Preservation Board of of you know films deemed uh, national treasures like this one has. It's you know it's it's interesting uh, how things. Um, stick and how things change over time. And a lot of it is just, you know, what people you know, might connect with at the time, but it's not uh, something that really lasts. So um, to that end, yeah.
2: You have to weigh how this is a, this is a director, Harold Ramis and a film that's just very influential on a lot of the comedy filmmakers we have today. Very, very David Russell's amazing. David O. Russell's a fantastic director. <laughs> And, and this reminded me of Silver Linings Playbook, you know, the, 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 in a way, because you know you're, you're, you're dealing with somebody who's also fighting their demons, if you will, and, yeah. uh, um, and he loves this film. This is like his favorite film, you know. This is this is yeah. this, this, this. So I mean, this is one 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 criterion is how 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 influential. And I think this is a very, very... This director is very influential and this film is very very influential. Um, But, yeah, I mean, David Russell, someone fighting their demons, using all that humble, difficult baby steps, hard work that it takes, but doing it in such a hilarious way.
0: There was an Italian remake of it uh, called, in 2004, uh, called uh, It's Yesterday Already, directed by uh, Giulio Manfredonia, uh, which... uh, I don't think it
2: went anywhere, did it?
0: (laughs) I don't know if it did or not. I mean, I didn't really hear much about it, but it's about an egocentric TV documentarian who finds himself trapped in a time loop during a reportage he's taking in uh, Tenerife. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a story that's popular.
1: And obviously, we've already mentioned the musical uh, uh, coming this year.
2: And it's, it's from what I can gather, it's, that musical is going to be a big hit. Yeah. It was a big hit in London uh, in 2016. So, uh, and, uh, I believe was
0: nominated for a number of theater awards, so it's it's exciting. What do they do um, for the the groundhog in the in the musical? I wonder.
1: <laughs> Is it just a whole a, a groundhog uh, m- breeder?y uh, Below set, <laughs> they just are breeding
2: groundhogs all the time. <laughs> I don't know. That groundhog has to check his equity whites. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you can't you can't work that groundhog more than eight hours that's right i don't know Uh, i i
0: I, I would i would imagine it's not a real groundhog i don't know oh sure. yeah sure uh you know it's funny this film really just became so popular and iconic that the term groundhog day started just taking on its own meaning you know meaning you know this aside from obviously this this whole idea of spiritual transcendence it also you know for a lot of people just means that you know you're Same stuff, different day. And I guess it's become quite a military term as all the troops and stuff are are stuck in kind of the same situation, whether it's Somalia or Iraq or wherever it is. They're like, oh, just it's another Groundhog Day. And it's it's funny that it's really kind of become just this term describing, I'm stuck in this situation, can't get out.
1: Which is so wonderful, because that's not what Groundhog Day me is, right? I mean, it, they really have completely uh, created a, a, a retroactive continuity for the, the holiday. I right? love exactly. that. <laughs>
2: uh, it's great that it entered the lexicon as that, you know, and um, I think a lot of people, you know, are sick of their routines there's routine is, is is an interesting word it, it, people are sick of their routines they want the vary of their routines they would love the chance maybe uh it, it, they would love the chance they may fantasize to, to change the routine like Bill murray did um but that's yeah. I, I i fear i fear that it has a, a more sinister a bit, a bit of a military grind for these guys you know the same yeah. stuff every day Exactly,
0: you know Harold Ramis. Uh, I, I think that uh, he mentioned when uh, they were um, when he was doing all the press for the movie, people were asking him, you know, what would you do if you were stuck in a day like this, and and he said, you know, the thing is, life is really this. This is what my life is. Is everybody lives this life where they're stuck in this in this pattern? I, you know, he mentioned how he finds himself in a conversation with his wife or an argument, and he. In his head, he knows he shouldn't say something, but then he finds it coming out of his mouth anyway, and you know, exacerbating the situation. And it's like, okay, next time when this comes up, I have to remember not to say that. and it's it's funny he he just he described it so perfectly about how this is really what life is and how we are all in this situation where, we all have to learn and grow and, and find ways to make ourselves better. And I think that's, I mean, in the end, that really is what the film is, is getting across. And I think it does it in just a really magical way. Absolutely. And, and it may have taken Bill Murray 10 years
2: of repeating the same day over and over again. But eventually he did evolve. Eventually he did grow. Eventually he did realize what's important in life, love. And he, and he realized that he was in love with this woman. Uh, so that's the great thing about this film,
1: and he's a, he's a kick ass on the piano, right? Like, <laughs> well, he learned. Uh, that, no, I thought no, that was he, the lesson of the movie. Yeah. So. Well, he
2: learned <laughs> to be an ice sculptor, a pianist. Um, <laughs> right. What else? A doctor. But you know. but you right, know, isn't yeah, that yeah, funny? Like yeah. that
1: is the uh, that's that's sort of the story along the way that that gets lost a, a little bit as we talk about how brilliant it is as kind of a romance, but but uh, the 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 message of, uh, you know, of trial, of trial and error, of growth, of of like multiple careers. Like we, we are, you know, you know, you know I think that I, I get a little bit tired of the life is short meme, you know, live it up, life is short. Life is long, do a lot of stuff. That's what Groundhog Day celebrates, you know. Go be a doctor, go learn to play the piano, do all the things. You're on this planet for kind of a long time, so live it up.
2: Well, again, as somebody who started Life Advice TV, I <laughs> love this film because it does it gives you it does give you life lessons. It does give you you're right to vary your routine, to learn hobbies, to appreciate the people around you, to fall in love.
1: Beautiful, Andy. How'd it do in the box office?
0: Uh, well, Groundhog Day cost fourteen point six million dollars to make, which is about twenty four point four million in today's dollars. Timing its release just for uh, after the actual holiday. Studio released the movie on February twelfth, nineteen ninety three. Opposite Untamed Heart, The Temp, and Love Field, as well as two greats from uh, Down Under, Strictly Ballroom, and Dead Alive, Groundhog Day went straight to the top, opening at number one, where it remained for two weeks. It ended up grossing $70.9 million domestically, which is about $118.4 million in today's dollars. I couldn't f- find any profit info outside of the U.S., but that being said, it still did well for itself, earning an adjusted profit per finished minute of about 931000
2: that was very Quite good. For, for, yeah. Don't
0: forget, for comedy, that's excellent.
2: I'd love to hear the international box office. That's interesting. I wonder how this plays. I would imagine this would play really well in Europe. I don't know.
0: That's what I was wondering. I, I wish that I could have found some uh, figures about the international, because this is one of those, it's like such a quirky U.S. holiday. It's like, what do people outside of the country think of this? I mean, I know it, in context of the film, it almost doesn't even matter that it's a holiday. No, it doesn't. Right? It doesn't. So, uh, no. but it is I would one imagine I love things.
2: I would imagine, I, I know that England loves this film.
0: I know uh, yeah, when it was I, I, I know in- that
2: England, Eng, because a number of uh, English newspapers like The Independent and The Guardian keep on writing about this film. And I know there was a there was a 20th anniversary release. And I think Danny Rupin and, and um, Harold Ramis did something for the DVD or something
0: so there was yeah, right. some
2: there was something done in, in 2013 for this and it was written about by a lot of the british newspapers
0: i know when it, when it was released in brazil just to uh, deal with the title issue they they titled it the black hole of love <laughs> oh my oh, god that's you
1: know, it's a funny. It That's is a funny bad. thing about Groundhog Day too. Just on reflection, you know, I, I my background is in local news, and uh, you know, you ask yourself, gosh, could could any holiday have have you know sufficed? And and Groundhog Day, the holiday, uh, walks that fine line, right? Local and mid level market news stations don't send sat trucks out to Arbor Day celebrations, but then Christmas is too big, right? So you need kind of a ridiculous holiday right in the middle, and and. And Groundhog Day, I think, really walks that line well. It's, it, it you know, we still have a justifiable reason to send a local you know reporter, uh, but it, it's also pretty stupid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, traditional, traditional.
0: I don't know if it's funny or, or a little bit uh, just crazy, but if you look on Wikipedia about the actual holiday Groundhog Day, they have the reports from uh, various locations <laughs> oh, uh, no. since two thousand sixteen, going back through two thousand eight of what the groundhog, which groundhog, and what they uh, predicted. <laughs> uh, no, just uh, just from uh, from two thousand eight to two thousand sixteen they have all the predictions from all the different groundhogs as far as were they predicting an early spring or were they predicting six more weeks of winter. It's a, it's quite a... List. Are
1: there some groundhogs that are held in higher esteem in this regard, like who <laughs> see their shadow better?
0: You know, it makes, makes you wonder. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> we have groundhogs, Balzac Billy, Buckeye Chuck, Chattanooga Chuck, <laughs> Chesapeake Chuck, Chuckles, Dunkirk Dave. <laughs> I wonder if there's a been a scientific...
2: Study. I wonder if there's been a scientific study about these predictions. I like to I like, to, I, like to know, I like to know how accurate they are
0: It says here, uh, according to Groundhog day organizers, the rodents' forecasts are accurate seventy five to ninety percent of the time <laughs> so. oh that's good that's good I like that yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Although, here you go. According to Storm Facts Weather Almanac and records kept since 1887, Punxsutawney Phil's weather predictions have only been correct 39% of the time. So, so maybe Punxsutawney Phil is not the one to be following, although he, oh, I guess, geez. is the most famous one.
1: <laughs> this whole movie is built on a bench strength, uh, uh, <laughs> kind of a C team groundhog of all <laughs> well, the nerve. All right. We got to rank it. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. All right, head over to FlickChart.com slash The Next Reel, everybody, and you will see our list. You can scroll up in your show notes on your podcast player of choice, uh, and you'll see a link to this film on FlickChart right there. Just tap it, add this film to your library, and let's see how it stacks up to our ranking today. Now, the usual rules, uh, Jim, if we hit a movie, it'll it'll take us through a ranking of about, uh, oh, I'd say probably eight or ten movies here. Any movie that you have not seen, uh, that's okay. Just bow out. Andy and I will duke it out ourselves.
2: All right, I, I, all hate right. To, I hate to diminish this film in any way, but go ahead. This is a chance for discur- some
1: gut-wrenching, uh, gut-wrenching comparisons I don't want to
2: discourage anybody from seeing Groundhog. Oh, yeah,
1: that's oh no, no, no. <laughs> they're on our entire list of films, there are only a few that we actually advocate people don't see. So every film on this list <laughs> is good, <laughs> apart from the accidents that are at the
0: bottom of the list. So here we go. Uh, Andy? All right, first up, we have Groundhog Day or Mad Max, the original. I'm going to go with Groundhog Day here. I mean, I'm- I think it's really difficult. It's like comparing a pitcher and a batter.
2: I mean, <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. Or right. apple and orange. At least compare it to other things in its genre. Compared you know, that different is... Genres- Jesus. Oh, get that's, ready. This is, not, it,
1: this is not easy. And this is what we call the, uh, the, the flick chart hate crime. It really is comparing two movies. Uh, but you have to imagine this scenario. You're on a desert island, and all you have is a TV in these two movies. Which one are you going to watch first? A
2: Groundhog Day.
1: Groundhog Day for me, too.
0: All right. Next up, we have Groundhog Day or Trading Places, one of our Groundhog Eddie Murphy movies. It's yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day.
0: Groundhog Day, or our last speakeasy film, 101 Dalmatians, the uh, 1961 animated uh, Disney film. Groundhog Day for me. (laughs) Groundhog Day.
1: (laughs) You know, the Bancroft brothers made a fantastic case for 101 Dalmatians. It's a delightful film, but I, too, am Groundhog
0: Day. All right. Groundhog Day, or some Ridley Scott uh, action in Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down. Groundhog Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day.
1: Groundhog Day.
0: All right. Next up, we have Groundhog Day, or... Oh, I'm going with uh, some Spielberg uh, shark action. Jaws. Jaws. Ooh. Jaws. That was a yeah. Jesus. Yeah.
2: Jaws. Yeah. I'm yeah, I'm I'm Jaws.
0: I'm sorry. i going with Jaws. Groundhog Day, or uh, oh, here's a very different film Requiem for a Dream.
2: That
1: be the worst brilliant.
2: comparison,
1: the worst <coughs>
0: pairing we've ever
2: done. What a, that, that's a brilliant film, brilliant film. Oh, Ellen Burstyn's yes. fantastic. Oh yes. oh yes, tough call.
1: I I'm I you know I I'm with you. I adore uh, a Requiem for a Dream, but it's uh, you, you got to be in kind of a special place uh, to to watch that movie. After I, it's not a it, film I, I want to see again. Y- yeah, I'm I'm Groundhog
0: Day. Me too. Yeah, Groundhog Day for me too. Groundhog Day or some more Mad Max. We've got Mad Max Fury Road. Groundhog Day. Yeah, I'm still Groundhog Day. Me too. All right. Well, that lands it at number 10 on our flick chart out of 283 films that is a pretty strong spot for this film which i think is uh, absolutely the right place for it we have one
1: more more partner letterbox.com we just do a straight up five star ranking for me i'll tell you it's a five star film
0: absolutely definitely five stars for me as well absolutely this is wonderful
1: absolutely wonderful what a great pick jim
2: Thank you for the excuse to see this again after 20 years. I I really haven't seen it since 1993, and I thank you for the opportunity. I don't like repeating films for some stupid reason, but I thank you very much for the opportunity to see it again, and believe me, I will see it again in the next year as well. I will.
0: Absolutely. It is a great film. I'm so glad we did get to talk about it again. So uh, now, uh, jumping back, Jim, so your book, Beyond the Craft, What You Need to Know to Make a Living Creatively, um, where can people find this book?
2: It's on Amazon, both Amazon Kindle and Amazon Paperback. It's also via thebookpatch.com.
0: And we'll have all those links in our show notes and, and we'll put them up on our Facebook page so people can check it out. Uh, you know, it's, it is really just a great book. So much useful information for from somebody who has seen a lot of both sides of it, whether it's, you know, finding an agent or I think one of my favorite parts is kind of learning how to deal with yourself and your own personality in this crazy industry and, and you know, the persona you kind of have to create. Uh, just a lot of great information in here, Jim.
2: Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's sometimes we're our own worst enemy, and uh, I wanted to address fears and anxiety as we we all may have. Uh, A lot of creative people are uh, not great at networking or schmoozing, as I call it, and so I talk about how to become a better network, how to to improve yourself in that way, because it's such an important part of success uh, as a creative professional, and I talk about how to distinguish yourself and how to distinguish your project, and how to find a mentor. And, you know, uh, all the things I think are very important uh, to to getting to the next level of one's career.
0: Do you have um, other spots on the Internet where uh, you hang out, where people can find you, that you want people to check you out?
2: Well, uh, my website is www.jimgermanic.com. J-E-R-M-A-N-O-K. JimGermanic.com is my website. And people can contact me via that website, of course. And I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter at Get Real, Get Real.
0: And then they can also go to, is it lifelessons.tv to check out some of your... um... Oh, what my my
2: web series uh, is uh, about uh, old people giving advice is lifeadvicetv.com
0: life advice, TV. Life advice
1: com. tv that's right all right well we will have all of those links in the show notes absolutely you uh, are all over the place uh, but mostly thank you jim for being here
0: today we really appreciate your time
2: it's my great great pleasure thank you for doing this show
0: and for everybody out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, uh, all those great places, and of course YouTube. And then don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment. It really does help me more people find us. Uh, thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, I'm off to Punxsutawney. I'm going to use you
1: to be my best <laughs>
0: One easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your
1: purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on the Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links, where you can buy your copy of the original source material.
0: Original material for movies. We like movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's oil. I believe it's oil! Oh yeah, I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal
0: effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner.
1: That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.